All right, well, as mentioned, we'll be going through the book of Amos. We are going through the book of Amos, so grab your Bibles, open up to Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7, we're going to go through the first nine verses uh, tonight. And as is our habit, I'm going to begin by reading what we'll be going through first. So follow along with me as I read Amos chapter 7, starting in verse 1. The Lord Yahweh showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to come up. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it happened when it had completed eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord Yahweh, please pardon. How can Jacob rise up? For he is small. Yahweh relented concerning this. It shall not be, said Yahweh. Thus Lord Yahweh showed me, and behold, Lord Yahweh was calling to contend with them by fire, and it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. Then I said, Lord Yahweh, please stop. How can Jacob rise up, for he is small? Yahweh relented concerning this. This too shall not be, said Lord Yahweh. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a wall made with a plumb line, and in his hand was a plumb line. And Yahweh said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. And the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will pass over them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated, and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. The book of Amos has so far been, for sure, a book of judgment. And each chapter has basically been a warning that judgment is coming. This chapter begins kind of a, a little bit different approach, uh, and that it's going to begin with five visions. This section has three, but by the time that we're done with the entire section that we're beginning here, we're going to have five visions that God gave to Amos. And each of these visions is, like what we've heard before, aimed at the coming judgment of Israel. First two visions are basically event visions. There's going to be an event coming. The locust will come, the swarms of locusts. Or the second one, there's going to be a great fire. The next two visions that we'll look at, one this week and one next week, will be wordplay visions. These are going to be visions that have some form of symbolism in order to teach and convey the message. And then the last vision is distinct in its form and content, and it shows the Lord executing His judgment upon Israel. All together, when you add them all up, they basically have a unified message of God's intention to carry out judgment upon Israel. And they progress as well. In the first two, what you're going to notice, and what you already noticed, is that the vision is presented. Amos is overwhelmed because you have to realize, although we're reading it, he is seeing it. That's the the idea behind the vision. You're actually seeing it. You read the book of Revelation, John is seeing it, and often he is 
um, beside himself at what he's seeing. He, he can't believe it. He's overcome with emotion. And that's the same kind of thing. He's actually seeing it and experiencing it. Uh, this is like watching a movie, but being there in the movie. And so this is overwhelming to a Amos. And so in the first two, he makes a request, and he asks that God would relent, and he does. Amos is moved to compassion. However, the progression is, as we continue through the visions, Amos, by the end, has no response whatsoever. And what he comes to realize is that judgment is inevitable because of God's justice that has to be brought due to Israel's lack of repentance. And so that's a little bit of an overview, and then what we'll do is dive in and look at each one of these tonight. And so I've made the outline uh, very, very simple. The first point, we're going to look at the vision of locusts. So point one is just locust, all right, locust. Um, and it comes from verses 1 through 3. Let me read it again for us. Thus the Lord Yahweh showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to come up. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it happened when it had completed eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord Yahweh, please pardon. How can Jacob rise up? For he is small. Yahweh relented concerning this. It shall not be, said Yahweh. So the first vision has to do with a swarm of locusts, which, you know, I, I think in our modern context, we're not really as familiar with. We understand what's going on, but it, we've never actually seen it. I mean, you've never had a swarm of locusts come through and eat your garden, right, um, at your house. And you probably don't care about that garden anyway because that's your parents. But regardless, these aren't things that we've experienced in our modern context. Um, but at least in the ancient world, and in some parts of the world today, locusts were certainly a thing to be feared. Uh, this is what the National Geographic describes uh, the ancient predators like. It says this, Throughout history, locust swarms devastated crops, caused major agricultural damage, and much human misery from its resulting famine and starvation. Although such events can occur in any part of the world, today locusts are most destructive in sustenance farming. And this is just the kind of farming where people depend upon it for their livelihood um, in regions in Africa. The desert locusts are the most notorious. Found in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, they inhabit some 60 countries, and I don't even know how to like think about this, can cover one-fifth of the earth's land service. Okay, so this is like a lot of locusts when you think about it that way. Desert locust plagues may threaten the economic livelihood of one-tenth of the world's humans. A desert locust swarm can be 460 square miles in size and pack between 40 and 80 million locusts into less than a half of a square mile. Uh, just for context, so 460 square miles, if you're trying to like think about that and you're like me, city boy, and can't think about that, I looked it up and San Antonio is 550 square miles. So this is a massive swarm and area that these locusts are covering. How much can they eat? Each locust can eat its weight in plants each day. So they eat their weight. The next day, they're going to eat it again and again and again and again. So such a swarm would eat 423 million 
pounds of plants every day. Like the individual animals within them, locust swarms are typically in motion and can cover vast distances. In 1954, for example, a swarm flew from northwest Africa all the way to Great Britain and wreaked havoc the entire way. All that to say, this judgment would have been extreme. And a swarm of this size would have most likely been a death sentence to many of the people. Hence Amos's response at the end of verse 2, it happened when it had completed, when the locusts had completed eating the vegetation of the land. And now you understand a little bit about what that means. It ate everything that I said, Lord, please pardon. Uh, please forgive is the idea. In other words, what he's getting at is don't do this. <laughs> this is going to devastate everything amongst my people. Now, this vision, if you read it closely, you notice is not only about the judgment that is coming, but it also tells us about the timing of the judgment, which actually makes it worse. Not only are locusts coming, but God says this is when they're going to come. He specifies it. You see in verse 1, He showed me, behold, He was forming a swarm when the spring crop began to come up. That's the first crop. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing, and it happened when it had completed eating the vegetation of the land. So sorry, spring crop, second crop, after the king's mowing, this is after the first crop. And so here's how it would work. You have a first crop, and then the king would mow the crop, which doesn't mean that he's got out of the lawnmower and he's mowing it down. It basically means he's getting his share of the crop, in order to give to all of his government officials, to feed his own household, to take however much. It's like a tax that he takes upon the people. So in other words, the first crop isn't necessarily to feed everyone. It can't because that goes to the government, and the government takes what it wants. So the people would have been waiting for the second crop. This is where their livelihood comes. Now here's what happens. Just before the mowing, and while the other one is growing, God is going to send the locust swarm. In other words, both of them are wiped out. You wipe out one, this is a problem. You wipe out both of them, this is like the end of a civilization in some sense, or a town. So this is a great judgment, to say the least. And it comes at the worst timing possible. The reason this is so bad is because these people are substance farmers. Substance farmers. They are dependent upon this. Now, we begin to think, I'm glad that we're not in that same situation, but actually, we are. We're dependent upon all kinds of things. Um, in fact, we're probably more dependent than they are. I mean, here's the reality. If the power all of a sudden goes out in here, what do we do, all right? I mean, I'm using, if this goes out, I'm done. I can't preach anymore. i, I got to have my notes, right? I mean, we're dependent upon electronics for so much. Um, I, I was listening to a crazy conspiracy thing the other day, which the guy claimed it wasn't a conspiracy. If a big solar flare hits the Earth, our hemisphere, apparently this happens. It happened in 1850. It knocks out our power grid. 
I mean, I'm not growing vegetables in my backyard, are you? I mean, this is a problem. So things that we are dependent upon, if God takes that, we're done. And here's just one thing to take from this. You cannot be ultimately dependent upon anything other than the Lord. You understand? If you're dependent upon anything other than the Lord, then when He takes it, you're up a creek, no paddle, you've got nowhere to go. You will die. And you'll die without God. And so we want to be preparing for that by being dependent solely upon God. What does this look like if you're dependent upon God? You're thinking about God. You're thanking God for each thing you have. For all the little things that we take for granted, we're not dependent upon those things. Father, thank you for all these things. And you can hear it sometimes in the simple prayer of a child who thanks the Lord at night for their bed, for their house, for a car. All these things that we take for granted, who gave them? God. The Lord gives and the Lord can take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The praise goes to Him. The thanksgiving goes to Him. We don't want to become a people who forget God, but remember the stuff that we cannot rely on. And that's essentially what had happened in Israel. They forgot God, and they were really reliant upon stuff, upon things. Well, what is one thing that's going to make them remember God? Take it away. And all of a sudden, you begin to realize how much you need God. And so this is where they were. And we like to think that we're safe where we are, but the reality is anything could change at any given day because God is sovereign over it all. So it's difficult to imagine the depth of devastation that Amos witnessed, but we need to understand that it was great. One way we know it was so great is because of Amos's response. He pleads with the Lord. Lord Yahweh, I think Lord Yahweh because he's acknowledging his sovereign lordship over all. It's a, an honor and respect as he comes before him. Uh, please pardon. And what he's also confessing here, how can Jacob rise up? Uh, Jacob is Israel. How can Israel rise up? He is small. In other words, what he's saying is, we cannot contend with you. If you do this, there's no way that we can stand. We're done. And then Yahweh relents. It shall not be, he says. Now, I know that language might bring up some questions in your mind. It does in mine. Uh, but because the next vision says the same thing, we'll cover it in that section. So that brings us to the next vision, which is fire. Fire in verses 4 through 6. We have another vision. Showed him the locusts, Amos prayed, God listened, and he said, it shall not be. Another vision. Thus the Lord Yahweh showed me, behold, look at this, consider this. Lord Yahweh was calling to contend with them by fire. So again, contending, warring, and it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. It's a very similar kind of situation. You consume the farmland, you've got no hope. Then I said, Lord Yahweh 
please stop. How can Jacob rise up? He is small. Again, an acknowledgement of their smallness in regards to God's power. And again, Yahweh relents concerning this. This too shall not be, said Lord Yahweh. Now, it's interesting to note that the first four visions actually come in pairs, and we have the first pair here. Uh, And the reason for this is the repetition in the visions actually uh, is put forth to say it will, in some sense, happen. Judgment is coming. Uh, There's an example of this in uh, the story of Joseph. Joseph had two visions, you remember, in the beginning uh, to his brothers, the sheaves and the sun, and then the moon and the eleven stars. They both communicated the same kind of message about the future. And then Pharaoh had two visions, and again, they communicate the same kind of thing regarding the future. There's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And the idea is that it will happen. And the reason we know this is because Joseph makes it clear. He says the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. He's revealed his intentions. Uh, Joseph also declares the purpose of the pairing. He says, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So the doubling of Amos's visions appears to function in the same way. He's trying to show Amos that judgment is fixed. It's coming. Now, then we get to what maybe is of some interest to you, and that is, if it's fixed, how is it that Amos is able to plead with God and then God relents? And maybe some of your translations even say repent or change. Um, Yahweh relented concerning this. This too shall not be, says the Lord Yahweh. So what do we make of this? The first thing we can say is this is difficult to understand and some things in Scripture Um, are that way. And that is not really something that we should be troubled by. In some sense, it's something we should expect. If God is who He says He is, and He is, and He's all-powerful and and has all knowledge and is infinite and eternal and all these things, you might expect that some things to our very finite minds, sinful minds, fallen minds, might be difficult to grasp. And I think this could be one of those things. And I think even saying that, some of the language that's here, I think it's God's um, trying to help us through human language understand what's going on. So let me just give you some notes about this. One, we should note Amos' heart in this was for his people. Uh, He had been preaching judgment. Uh, Amos chapter 1 all the way through 6. I mean, he is bringing it hard. The lion's coming. You can hear his roar. You need to repent. The trap has been set. Judgment is coming. God is going to judge for all these things. And he he doesn't like hold back on any punches. He's laying it out hard. And yet, now we see the motive is because he cares for them. He doesn't want them to experience judgment. He's telling them, if you continue this way, judgment is coming. The reason he's preaching so strongly is because he cares. He can't hold back. And you see this because when the time comes for them to be judged, he's pleading for more time. He's asking God to stop. 
Be patient a little longer. Another thing to know, I think the reason he does this, the reason he asks God to stop, is because he knows God. He knows that God is a God of mercy. He knows God's heart is one of grace. He knows he loves his people. And so I think he believes he can come and ask this in accordance to God's will. In other words, that is the basis of his prayer. He prays according to what he knows about God. He knows God is merciful. He knows he's just. He knows that he loves his children. And thus he's going to pray along those lines. Another thing. Understanding, and I've already kind of mentioned this, that human language cannot always fully capture spiritual realities. To us, it seems that God is maybe changing his mind here, or some translations even use the word repent. But in reality, there's no changing going on here. He's always at all times a God of wrath. He's always at all times a God of mercy. He's always at all times fully just and fully loving. All these things are fully operative at one time. And so it's not as if any of that changes the timing of that change, or there might be another opportunity to display his mercy, but he has not changed in that sense. It's perhaps a change of course, what it seems to be a change of course, from man's perspective, but not from God's perspective. Further, I think you could say that the vision's again, are showing an intent, not necessarily exactly what's going to happen. That This is the reality. When judgment comes, it will be beyond what you will be able to stand against. It will be devastating. All these things, uh, never was there an exact, it would happen. And so all of this to say, even though this may sometimes be hard to understand, I think God is at the end of the day communicating His intention to judge sin. That does not mean that he will not be merciful if there is repentance or that he does not desire to show patience. He is a good father. In fact, I was just thinking right before this, uh, so um, when the girls got home from school, yesterday their rooms, like I don't know what happened, but it was like tornado times 20 hit up there, and it was bad. It was, it was really bad. Like, there's no way, Kyle, your girls ever have your rooms this bad. Okay, it was bad. All right, so I'm working with Harper and, and Adley to get their rooms clean. And I go up there, and, and you know, I'm, I'm making some threats to them. Like, hey, you're not watching a movie tonight with Miss Jana, because, you know, on Thursday nights they get to watch a movie. They're all excited about that. If you don't get it clean. And so here's what you need to do, Harper. You need to get this and this and this and this and under the bed. Make sure you get under the bed, Okay. I go downstairs, and I'm doing my thing, I'm studying, and then I go back upstairs, and I'm asking Harper, is it good? Okay. It's not good. <laughs> like, there's still stuff under the bed. There's still stuff under the drawer. There's, why is this on your bed? There's clothes on your bed that should be, in, okay, and so I'm going to give her another shot at this, and I'm going to give her another shot. Why? Because I don't necessarily desire or take pleasure in causing my girls pain. But I want them ultimately to learn the lesson. I want them to learn that there is a standard to go after, and I just want you to aim to meet that with the right heart. And so one of the things that I saw is that it was a little frustration coming from Harper when I would come back up there and point out the mistakes. 
And now we've got a different issue that we're dealing with. But I'm willing to deal with it because I love her and I want to be patient and it provides an opportunity. And I think that's some of what's going on in a very imperfect way that is described with God here. He is still a loving, good father and desires. He has a heart for his people to repent. And so if there's at all an opportunity, he does that. And that's exactly what is going on today. Like there may be some sense in you where you're crying out, judge the craziness that's going on and some frustration that it's not happening. Why is it not happening? God is patient. He wishes for none to perish. And maybe our prayers need to change. And it needs to be, Lord, continue to be patient and bring them to a place of repentance. These are the people that you have put me around. I'm, in one sense, one with them. I'm an American or whatever it may be. I desire for them to come to know you. And I think we want to make sure that our heart is matched in that way, and yet at the same time that we have a heart like Amos who still can understand that God's judgment is coming and it's just. You have to say both. His judgment is coming. It's just. You're sinning. You deserve His judgment. You haven't met the standard, and yet I need to tell you, God is patient and He's merciful and He wishes for none to perish It's both aspects because God is all of these things at one time. And so all of this shows us not that God is constantly changing his mind, but that all of his attributes are at one time constant and to the fullest. And so we keep that in mind. Another thing that we need to understand is as we look at this, Amos and his prayer is very short. And you might think in a situation where you've just had a vision like this, man, what would make God relent? I'm going to have to put together a lot of words and be as eloquent as I can. But you see that Amos just has like three or four words, like, please stop, don't, don't do this. The prayer of the righteous man is effective. It availeth much is what James says. Jesus says this, and when you are praying, Matthew 6, 7, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do. They suppose they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, therefore, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. I think there must have been some understanding on Amos's part. He knew, God knew what was in his heart. He knew God was sovereign. He was Lord. There was nothing he could do but just put the simple request out there and leave it there. And I think sometimes we do best by understanding that, just a simplistic, childlike prayer that has an understanding that God knows all. He's sovereign over all. He even knows my heart. I'm just going to simply say what's on my heart and leave it at that, not adding any frills to it. So that brings us to the end of these two visions of destruction. And where we are now, the visions have happened. The judgment will be great. That God has relented. The intention is still there, but there's patience for now. But now a third vision, a plumb line, which maybe you don't know about, but we'll cover. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a wall made with a plumb line. 
and in his hand was a plumb line. And Yahweh said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will pass over them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated. The sanctuaries of Israel will be laid to waste. And then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. Here we learn God is patient, but he is not patient forever. And his grace will not be abused forever. There is a sovereign day of judgment that is appointed for everyone. Today is the day of mercy, but there is coming a day of judgment, and it will come. In Exodus 34, 6, when God hides Moses in the cleft and he passes before him, this is what he proclaims about himself. It says he passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps his loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He will by means, no means leave them unpunished. And so this is what we find here. Now, maybe you don't know what a plumb line is, because in our day we hear plumb and we think fruit or we think plumber. Um, but that's not what we're talking about. A plumb line is a line or a cord uh, that you would have, and so you're holding the string or the line or whatever, and on the other end is a weight. And so if you're building a wall and you want to know, is that wall straight, you go to the top of the wall and you drop the cord with the weight on there, and guess what? That's always going to point towards the center of the earth because of gravity. And so you're going to know whether your wall is straight up and down or not. And so that's the illustration which Amos would have been probably extremely familiar with, the people would have been extremely familiar with. And what is he saying? He's saying, okay, you've built something. Great. And I assume that when you built this something, you used a plumb line. That's what you should use. It's only fair that I take the plumb line and I hold it up and see whether it's actually straight. So this illustration is meant for God's people because what he's saying is, okay, I see what you're doing with the temple and your worship and your sacrifices. I see what you're doing at church. And we should assume that you're going according to God's law and according to the word of God. So I can take this word, I can take this plumb line up and I can drop it and it will be exactly straight because this is a perfect standard. And we're going to be able to see whether what you are doing is actually going to hold up to the standard. This is the point when they should have become extremely nervous. Because although on the outside there may have been some sense of ritual and traditions that looked good, on the inside it was completely off. And God's law is perfect. And no man can meet that standard. Just as gravity always points things directly to the center of the earth, it's a perfect standard, so also God is saying, I'm going to use my perfect standard. This reminded me of Psalm 127.1, which says, Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. 
Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late. O you who eat the bread of painful labors, for in this manner he gives sleep to his beloved. All right, so all of you are doing some kind of ministry, I assume. All of you are seeking to live for the Lord, I assume. Maybe I shouldn't assume that. But unless you're doing it for God, it's in vain. You can do a lot of great things with a wrong heart, and God knows. God knows. 1 Corinthians 3.8. Each, actually turn there before I read it, because you need to see this. While you're turning there, I'll tell you just a cool little story. So Psalm 127, unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain. And I started thinking, you know what? We've got to sing that song tonight, All Glory Be to Christ. And so I texted Zach, and I said, hey, I'm just making sure, did you put this song in there? And of course, or no, actually I checked before I texted you, and Zach had already put it in there without even knowing that we were doing this. So God is sovereign over our music. 1 Corinthians 3.8. But each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Why are you careful? You're careful if you're trying to do it according to the standard. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ has to be first. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will indicate it, because it is revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This is talking about the Bema Seat of Christ. There are two judgments, the great white throne judgment. That judgment will simply be, are you in Christ or not? Have you repented and trusted in that provision or not? And for those who haven't, you're judged at the great white throne judgment. For those who pass because you are in Christ, there is another judgment where rewards will come out. Those are people who have trusted in Christ, but they may have built some of their ministry with wrong motives, done things not according to God's word, and all of that will be burned up, and there will be suffering of loss in that day. And that loss just means more rewards. So, there's actually, in a sense, two standards we need to look at. One, if you are not... I just got to like take this thing off, right? I'm done with this. If you are not building the ground-level foundation on Jesus Christ then you don't meet the standard at all. He is the perfect plumb line. And there is a sense that whatever wall you build will fall over without Christ. That has got to be the foundation. And if you have not repented of your sins, understanding that before God's law, you cannot measure up. If you don't have an understanding of that, so that you've cried out to Him and given your life to Him, you are in real trouble. Locust swarm, fire coming, eternal hell, whatever you want to call it, at the end of the day, there is devastation on an eternal level coming to you that you deserve. And God's justice will be poured out on you 
because you deserve it. Today is a day of mercy, and He has provided, because He's a loving God, Jesus Christ, who has paid the penalty of that, who's lived a perfect life. He is the perfect one who lived up to that perfect standard. You need His righteous covering. If you've called out to Him and trusted in the promise, then you have the provision needed. But also, we must remember as Christians that everything we do in ministry for the Lord is weighed against the standard. We want to continue to grow in Christ's likeness, following Him, making sure, being careful to do everything that we do according to God's Word. Which means we're not just worried about outward show. We're not just worried about how many people we get in the building. We're worried about hearts. We're worried about our own heart before the Lord. Which means we're always walking in the fear of God, constantly knowing that one day we will stand before our King and this will be used to see whether we've actually walked according to His Word. Is this harsh? No. This is merciful. And it's full of grace. Because you've just read it. Not only is there salvation if you trust in these things, but also there are heavenly rewards for walking according to this. He's told you ahead of time. Which means all of us ought to be walking around at all times with a plumb line, with God's Word, weighing our lives not against the traditions of men, not against what other people may think is right or wrong, but always bringing it back to the perfect standard of God's Word. This is what keeps us level. This is how we come to right conclusions. Always humbly dependent on God. This is the idea. And so returning back to this paradox of God's mercy and wrath, the last thing I would say is that if you can't get your mind wrapped around this, one thing that it does remind us of is that these things are both answered at the cross. Because at the cross, God's justice was poured out and satisfied because Christ paid the penalty. But also at the cross, God's mercy was satisfied because for those who trust in Him, God can now rightly and justly have mercy because Christ now paid the penalty. He said it is completed, fully paid for. Mercy and justice at the cross, fully satisfied. God is patient, awaiting that day, and we in the meantime should trust in His standard and call others to do the same. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and ask, Father, that You would Lord, give us a greater love for Your Word, a greater passion for it. Lord, help us to be careful with it and to walk carefully according to it, not in a legalistic way as though we could somehow earn our salvation or earn Your pleasure, but Father, in a way that communicates just a thankful heart and a heart that desires to walk according to Your Word because we love You and because we love Your Word, and because we know that this is where joy is found. 
and because we have our hope set in the eternal wards that you have promised. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know as we look around us that our world is crumbling, judgment is coming, and most do not see it. And so, Father, help us to have a heart of compassion like Amos as well for those unbelievers that you place in our lives. Father, we commit this night to you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.